Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast this week, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki here with John Mitchell, and we are talking about the SEC. We're wrapping up our 2020 college football preview series with the conference down in John's part of the country. So, we got a great show ahead for you today. Uh, in our first segment, we'll be talking a bit, you know, more about general news around the state of college football. I definitely want to get to some of Kirby Smart's comments about the national championship and what kind of asterisk might be on it. We're going to also quickly talk about the FCS kickoff that just happened down in Montgomery, Alabama this past weekend between Austin P and Central Arkansas. Then we're going to talk a bit about players that are opting out, because that's certainly going to impact how we look at these previews moving forward. In our second segment, we'll be covering the SEC East and offering our order of finish for that. And then we'll be going to the SEC West in our final segment. Before we dive in, though, John, how are things going in your part of the world this week? Going good. Excited to talk... uh... Some SEC football, excited to talk some real live football that actually already took place so far this year. So, you know, for better or worse, the season has kicked off. Indeed it has. And let's talk about that a second, because I wrote about this in my Sunday morning quarterback column that that came back online after a bit of a summer break. And, you know, this FCS kickoff, it at once, it's exciting that we have football, right? And on the other hand, it was surreal, you know, seeing what college football was going to look like in 2020, getting our first taste. I got to admit, I was a little bit uneasy watching this game. And I, I think for me, part of that stems from the fact that so much of the talk this summer around our need, you know, for college football to return, and and so much of what people talked about with this is the impact it has on communities in which teams play, the impact it has on campus communities, in the broader college towns where these teams exist. But you had two FCS teams traveling hundreds of miles to a neutral site to a state that has had far worse COVID-19 numbers than the ones that they came from. And I gotta be honest, John, it, 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 I didn't like that. I really did not like that one bit. I think if we're going to have football this year, it needs to be done as responsibly as possible. And that's not to say that the Crampton Bowl there in Montgomery wasn't doing everything they needed to. You know, there were a couple thousand spectators officially in the stands you know if you saw that broadcast it certainly didn't look like several thousand even but you know everybody's wearing masks everybody's distancing and it still feels really weird to go down this road of escapism in the midst of a pandemic it really did I I I don't know how you felt about that game I mean itself it was an exciting game you know Austin P comes out, gets a touchdown on the first play from scrimmage, and, you know, Central Arkansas is playing catch-up for most of the game until they get that, you know, winning score in the final minute. 
and even then, you know, the governors had their chance to come back. Uh, you, you know, they got down inside the central Arkansas 30 and couldn't pull it off in the end. But, you know, it was the type of exciting game that you want to get jazzed up for. I just couldn't. Yeah, I mean, I understand. It was kind of surreal to have college football back when, you know, particularly when you've seen such a large chunk of college football programs decide not to have a season in general. So it already feels strange in that regard. And then to have, you know, we talk a lot on this podcast about what the, you know, moral obligation is for programs and stuff trying to have a season. And, you know, I, I, don't, I don't feel good about it either. Uh, I'd be lying if I told you I didn't enjoy getting to watch some college football again because it is, like you said, that form of escape, escapism that I feel like everybody needs, not necessarily deserves because we haven't done everything we could do in the last six months to allow this to be, you know, played in a more safe environment. I mean, I, I there's a local high school here in South Alabama who has shut down their football season after playing one game because of concerns over COVID-19. Um, so, I mean, I, this, that could be something that, that certainly happens uh, during the season this year in college football and across the country for high school athletes as well. So, you know, as much as exciting as it was to watch Austin P score up 75 yard touchdown on the first play from scrimmage to open this college football season, you know, it, it whether or not we should be playing at all was certainly in the back of my mind the entire game, too. And then, you know, I, I, I think maybe what disturbed me most was the fact that they were both playing away from home. You know, if you're going to have... It, it, college football is a sport where a team is going to have to travel every week. You can't create a bubble, as we've seen in some of these pro leagues. We've talked about that already. It's just not possible. But do you really need to be traveling? I mean, in Austin Peay's case, 300 miles. In Central Arkansas's case, 400 miles as the crow flies to play a football game. I, I think it, I, I think that seemed like perhaps the most irresponsible part of all of this to me. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I don't. Neutral site games make very little sense in this environment. You know, regular games make very little sense in our current environment. So, yeah, having both teams having to travel, having to stay presumably in hotels overnight um, and whatnot like that. So, yeah, I, I agree. That's definitely, definitely felt a little weird as well. And I mean, this is going to be, I think everything about this college football season is going to feel very weird and very, you know, we're all going to be kind of wondering, is it really worth it? Should we really be doing this particularly depending on, you know, what happens in terms of cases, right, and whatnot, because we're gathering all these people together to play sports. Exactly. You know, and the fact that stadiums are talking about bringing anybody back, even in reduced capacity, is absolutely wacky to me. But, you know, you mentioned this idea of everything feeling surreal, and I and the risks that we're watching in real time. And I think that brings us to another great point. Players are looking at this, and not everybody wants to do it. You know, we I, I think the most notable case out of the SEC obviously has to be Jamar Chase, uh, the brilliant wide receiver from LSU that everybody 
remembers oh so well from last year and, and that absolute breakout that he had catching passes from Joe Burrow. But, you know, he opted out on August 30th and you know he joined, what is it at this point? We have 13 SEC players that have opted out at this point. And I think part of what's interesting about that is where they're opting out and who's opting out. I think LSU, you know, coming into a title defense, they were already losing a lot. And we'll talk about that more when we get to the individual team previews. But with Chase deciding to opt out, that was the first big name on offense for an offense that's already fairly gutted. But then you had a couple of defensive linemen, you know, Neil Farrell and Tyler Shelvin both said thanks, but no thanks. Kerry Vincent in the defensive backfield said no thanks. LSU's coming into the year having lost a bunch, and, and they're not alone. You know, you look at a team like Vanderbilt. Obviously, the Commodores don't recruit nearly at the level of other SEC teams. Part of that is just the academic requirements that come at a school like Vanderbilt. Some of that is, you know, just the fact that they've been a traditional laughing stock in the conference. But they've lost three offensive linemen to opt-outs now. They lost their kicker, Warren Milstein, and, and, you know, we're looking at these teams in real time, and it's hard to even project where they might end up depending on how many players actually do suit up in the end. Yeah, I, and I don't think we've seen the last of the opt-outs across the country either. Like you said, Jamar Chase opting out was probably the biggest domino to fall uh, across college football so far in terms of opt-outs for this year. He's a projected you know, number one wide receiver for next year's draft, projected top ten pick, and he's opted to sit out. And I mean... You totally understand it when you look at guys like that. If I was coming into this uncertainty around this college football season with, you know, COVID cases spiking in some in certain areas and or particularly on college campuses with kids coming back, if I'm a projected first round pick, I don't think there's any way I'm playing college football this season. Particularly if I'm locked in to my position as much as Jamar Chase is locked in his, the Malitnikoff winner from last year going to be a top 10 pick in the draft, almost certainly barring something majorly unexpected. So, you know, you, you can't blame, like you said, LSU's kind of been gutted from it. They already lost a ton of players from last season's team already, and now they're losing several potential key guys. And who knows, they've had two guys opt out in the last couple of days um, on, you know, Sunday and Monday. They had a couple guys opt out with Chase and Shelvin going back to back. So who knows if that's done? You know, the, the less competitive a team starts to look, and I'm not saying LSU is not going to be good this year, but they've certainly taken a major hit. They're not going to be, you know, nearly what they were last season, if nothing else. And that's not a knock on Orgeron or anything like that. They've lost a ton. It would be unrealistic to expect LSU to be able to reach anywhere close to last season's heights. So you wonder if, you also wonder too, if teams have a bad start to the season. Do people kind of pack it in like, you know what, we're one and two through three games. Our season's pretty much over at this point. I'm out of here. So I, this is going to be an interesting thing to follow all season. I think we'll see some a few more big names opt out before the season starts um, in a few weeks for the SEC and for other conferences. And I think we'll see some in-season opt outs as well. I think it's going to be a wild ride. 
Yeah, it really will. You know, we talked last season about how weird it was to watch players start redshirting at Houston once the season turned sour there. That's going to be happening at every school, I think, as we go. So that's going to be a hell of a fascinating thing to watch down the road. Well, before we get to the next segment, John... One thing I'd really like to talk about is uh, these recent comments by Georgia head coach Kirby Smart about the national championship. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, I've talked about it both in a recent podcast and I've written about it extensively in the past. The national championship is a story that we construct. It's a negotiated construct. This is, you know what we have long called the mythical national championship. But he's come out and said that there's a couple of key quotes that came out in a recent interview that I'd love to just read to you and get your thoughts. First one, quote, as far as the national championship, basically it's the teams that are playing. If the teams that are playing play, I don't see why it would have an asterisk, because it is what it is. It's beyond the kids' control, end quote. What do you think of this? Do you think this season is going to have an asterisk by it? Do you think that losing multiple Power 5 conferences from the discussion decreases its legitimacy at all? I don't know. Like you said, it's it, you, it could be argued that, that every season doesn't really have a legitimate national champion. I think I think it all depends, right? Like, if, if your team wins the national championship this season, then of course there's no asterisk, right? Like, this is an absolute legitimate national championship. How dare you for even asking me that question? If your team doesn't win the national championship this year, then yeah, absolutely there's an asterisk. Or, you're, or especially if a rival team wins a national championship. If Auburn wins the national championship this year, I'll be... I'll be the loudest voice you've ever heard out there saying that it's not legitimate. So, you know, I, I think it all really comes down to it's subjective. And I feel like it's, it's always subjective in a way in the sport because of kind of the inability to be inclusive of everyone um, getting into the playoff and stuff like that. So, I mean, it, it's always subjective. I can understand a, a coach on a team who's that's thought to be a contender wanting to make sure that he says in preseason – that this is not going to be an, an asterisk uh, by whoever wins the national championship. But, you know, it's been, what, 40 years since Georgia's had to worry about that anyway, so I'm going to guess it's going to be 41. Well, that's spoken like a true SEC guy there, John. But there's one other quote that I want to read to you that I think is even more fascinating. Because this quote, I think, speaks to this idea of the SEC superiority complex that exists throughout the conference. Smart went on to say, quote, The only asterisk that would be by that would be, quote, This is the toughest team there ever was. Because they went through ten games in our league and played a championship game. End quote. If the SEC, if whoever wins the SEC goes on and wins the college football playoff, do you think that the fact that they had to play two additional SEC games might legitimize that that championship even more? Uh, yeah, I don't think it's really fair to, to go down that road. I, I understand. That's definitely 
uh, an SEC exceptionalism quote, if I've ever heard one. Obviously playing two more league games instead of playing two games against the little sisters of the poor, you know, as, as Gene Smith would like to say at Ohio State. Uh, you know, that's a different, you know, ball game. But there were several such big games out of conference. You know, you had USC, Alabama, Texas, LSU, uh, Tennessee, Oklahoma, I thought was going to be a really fascinating game this year as well. So, you know, it, playing two additional league games for any conference makes a schedule tougher, I think. I don't think that's exclusively an SEC thing. You know, playing 10 conference games instead of getting those tune-up games against, um, you know, FCS opponents or, or lower group of five teams. Obviously, that makes the schedule tougher, but I wouldn't say that just because you played 10 conference games means you played the toughest schedule ever or anything like that. We've seen, you know, teams play eight or nine conference games and then play three ranked teams out of conference before. I don't really think that's probably fair to say. That's definitely a little bit of hubris coming out of Kirby's mouth. Yeah, I mean, what if you're the team that drew Vanderbilt as one of your extra games? Is that really that different than some you know, group of five teams that you could be playing? Probably not, honestly. Um, I, I think a large part of that comes down to luck of the draw in a lot of cases. So I'm inclined to be, I mean, obviously not being a guy from SEC country who's never lived in SEC country, I, I'm immediately inclined to just laugh this off. But I think that, you know, as we've said, it's a real statement that a lot of people are going to absolutely believe in. And more than anything, that just speaks to this contested nature of that mythical national championship. Because you're always going to have disagreement. It's always going to exist. No matter, you know, I think in just barely over 20% of college football history have we ended a year with one team clearly standing head and shoulders above the rest. So, you know, in that regard, I, I think that this season at once is going to be very exceptional in terms of the circumstances of what we're watching. We saw that with the FCS kickoff this, this past Saturday. But I think at once, in a lot of ways, it, it, it's going to be business as usual in terms of that subjectivity that's baked into the system. Right. No, I completely agree. One additional note before we move on, too, about the SEC schedule, and this is really true of every conference-only schedule, Zach, why didn't these conferences schedule big week one games? Like, there was no marquee game on the SEC schedule for week one. You're talking about the best game for the first week of the SEC is Ole Miss, Florida, LSU, Mississippi State. I guess Kentucky-Auburn should be pretty fun. But, like, why not throw out there an Alabama-Georgia or something like that to open the season, have that big marquee game, particularly when you might only get two or three games in anyway because who knows how long the season's actually going to last. I just I don't get that from the SEC, and I didn't understand that from even the Big 12 and other conferences who announced their conference-only schedules, why they didn't go kind of gung-ho opening weekend. You know, honestly, I think it comes down to exactly what you just said. The fact that we might only get two or three games in and, you know, if this thing shuts down after what would we would call week six originally, you know, week seven originally, 
Um, you know, if it shuts down before Alabama and Georgia play, you could have multiple undefeated teams in the equation. And I think, you know, I think that's really probably what this comes down to. The fact that setting it up this way allows, you know, everyone from Alabama and Georgia to be undefeated, perhaps even, you know, LSU can get there through those first three weeks. Uh, Auburn might be able to through those first three weeks, although it did be either Auburn or Georgia since they play in their second week. But I think that's really probably why they set this up light at the beginning is because you're driving a narrative and if you have to shut it down in early October, you can say we ended with multiple undefeated teams. Maybe that's just the cynic in me, but, you know, the cynic in me was talking to a colleague of mine, who, a historian of sport, Andrew McGregor, who works down at Dallas College, uh, down in Texas, and we were talking about this on Monday, where I... It, the cynic in us was immediately looking at this and like the SEC is probably going to be one of those conferences that tries to play both a fall and a spring schedule if they can get away with it any way possible. I think that's honestly what it comes down to. If they have to shut that down early, you can start back up in the spring and say, hey, we've got all these you know teams that ought to be ranked ahead of everybody else to begin with. Yeah, I think it also you got to look at the wanting to throw a few softballs towards your contending teams to start with, not to piss off the heavyweights having to open against each other. But I, I just wanted to see, I guess, if we're going to have college football, I wanted to see some nice opening week games for each conference, and I just don't feel like we got that. Oh, no. By no means did we. I'm right there with you in terms of it's not a very inspiring slate, but I think they're banking on the fact that people were hungry enough for college football to watch Austin P and Central Arkansas play each other. So they're gonna this watch they're gonna watch whatever SEC football they can get. Well on that note everybody, let's take ourselves a quick break. Grab yourself a cold one, get yourself a bathroom break, stretch out those legs, and we will be right back to talk about the SEC East. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We're in SEC preview week, finishing up our 2020 preseason conference preview series in the midst of a pandemic, which makes things really interesting because as we look at the SEC this year, they're playing a conference-only schedule, which will make for some interesting situations for some teams. But just as we've done with every other preview series so far this year, we're going to be breaking down each division in order. We're going to start with the East, and we're going to be going in reverse order of how they finished in the 2019 standings. Which brings us to, no surprise I'm sure to anybody, the Vanderbilt Commodores. This team finished 1-7 last year in SEC play and 3-9 and overall. They haven't seen a bowl game in, you know, 
several years now at this point, and honestly, playing a 10-game SEC schedule, I think it's hard to even see a single win in there for this team this year, John. Yeah, it's it's definitely going to be a challenge for, for Vanderbilt, um, particularly with having a couple projected starters on the offensive line deciding to opt out for the season. That makes it even more difficult, particularly for, you know, you're looking at an offense that was one of the worst in college football last year. They were 123rd nationally in total offense. Um, and the big thing that's kind of changed in the last couple of years under Derek Mason, used to be able to rely on Mason being fielding a good defense. You know, whether that was back when he was the defensive coordinator at Stanford or, you know, as the head coach at Vanderbilt, he fielded competent, competitive defenses, even with, you know, obviously you're not going to recruit high-level talent to Vanderbilt in the SEC. It's always going to be a challenge. Uh, I think we don't probably talk enough about how great of a job James Franklin did at Vanderbilt because you see what's happened since he's left. It's the most difficult job in the conference, and uh, it's just been it's been strange to watch the regression defensively for Vanderbilt because they've gone they slipped to below 100 in total defense last year in college football. They returned a good bit of talent on that side of the ball this year, but you know it's just I don't know that they're going to be able to make much of an improvement. They you know got a very uncertain quarterback situation. You know they've talked about potentially starting a freshman this year. This feels like a very tough year to start a freshman quarterback with so many you know, with a lack of physical reps out there on the gridiron. So, you know, I, I wonder if Mason's going to be able to improve this team defensively some this year with everything they brought back. If they can take that step defensively, even if they don't improve much offensively, maybe that'll be good for a win. Maybe they'll sneak up on somebody, but I doubt they get much more than that. It definitely looks like another rough year for Mason, which could be his final one in Nashville. Which is unfortunate because, as you mentioned, this is – just a tough-as-hell job for any coach. And you're absolutely right. Franklin did a masterful job to get them to nine wins on multiple occasions, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, to do that in Nashville is absolutely absurd. But I think you're right. It's going to depend entirely on a defense that brings back 93% of its productivity from last year because that offense was already pretty much gutted before they lost three offensive linemen to opt-outs. But, I, you know, I think we can belabor that all we want. The hard truth is, I'm sorry, Commodores fans, this probably is not your year again. And I'm going to be honest, let's say the same thing to, to Gamecocks supporters, because South Carolina, you know, they finished last year 4-8 and eight overall. They were one of three teams to finish 3-5 and five in the SEC East. And, you know, they return a lot more talent. But, again, when you're playing an all-SEC schedule, I'm just not sure that... that South Carolina can can turn that hump enough to get to bowl eligibility in a year where four and six is probably going to be enough to get you bowl eligible out of the SEC. Yeah, I mean, South Carolina was kind of an interesting team last year. I think uh, Ryan Polinski showed a ton of promise as when he took over as the starting quarterback part of the way through the season. Then an injury kind of robbed them of what he could have done the rest of the season. So it'll be interesting with him having a full year 
uh, at least partial offseason under his belt. And if he can stay healthy all year, I'd be really interested to see what he's able to do. Because I thought he was really impressive last season uh, coming out for South Carolina um, and really stepping up. And, you know, there were a couple games last year where they were right on the the cusp of, of winning a couple more games. You know, they lost by one possession against North Carolina in the season opener last year. They dropped a close game late in the year to a really good Appalachian State team. Uh, so they were close to, to that full eligibility mark. I think their schedule is very challenging this year, uh, and that's going to make it pretty difficult, particularly not getting any of those kind of gimme games like they had against maybe Coastal Carolina and East Carolina and Wofford. Losing all three of those games is certainly tough, and that, that makes it tough for Will Muschamp. He's a guy that's got a lot of heat on him coming into this year. Um, so if he's going to be able to come back for year six, um, in 2021, I think they're going to have to at least be competitive and get close to that mark. Uh, but this is another team that defensively was kind of a letdown. Muschamp's always cut his teeth on that side of the ball, and they really struggled on defense last season and weren't able to be that typical Muschamp defense. So, you know, I, I think South Carolina's got some upside um, on this team offensively, particularly with Helensky back with Shai Smith and Josh Van at wide receiver. But I don't think they have quite enough juice to get to bowl eligibility, though I think they'll be right there at it. I'm going to be honest, we'll find this out more at the end of this segment, but you have more confidence, it sounds like, than I do in the Gamecocks, John. But, you know, that probably is good for all of you out there if you're taking our, you know, picks as anything to follow, because just listen to John. We learned that last year in our are picking against the spread. So if we disagree, I'd probably go with John on this one, especially because he's the SEC guy. But that, you know, let's shift from one Columbia to the other. Missouri was another team that finished three and five in the SEC East last year, went six and six overall. Uh, But they, they're a team that loses more talent than just about anybody in the SEC East and and damn near in the SEC entirely. You know, they bring back less than half of their offensive production. They bring back only about two-thirds of their defensive production from a team that was perfectly middling. And one thing that I look at when I look at this is you, you mentioned the kind of schedule that these teams have to play. You know, Missouri has... Alabama and Georgia coming to their house. And at the same time, they have to go on the road to Florida, LSU, Tennessee, as well as Mississippi State and South Carolina, which if they're going to win any games on the road, it's probably either going to be in Starkville or in the other Columbia. But even those are probably going to be a tough sell for the team. Do you think there's any chance at all for the Tigers this year, John? No, I don't. I, I think this team's got some talent on it, but, man, that schedule is brutal. I mean, welcome to the SEC, Aliyah Drinkwitz. Like, opening up with Alabama first coming to Columbia. Then you get Tennessee and LSU in back-to-back games after that. So that's your first three games against Alabama, against the Tennessee team that should be much improved, and then the defending national champions. And then after Vanderbilt, you draw Florida and Kentucky back-to-back. So, I mean, I think Missouri's got some talent. I think they could be an improved team overall. 
from last year even and finish with a much worse record just because the schedule does them no favors. I think it's going to be a really difficult uh, task for Missouri to potentially reach anywhere close to bowl eligibility just because of what they got facing them. Oh, yeah. I, I think it really is just a, a mess of a first year. This is not going to be the kind of first year for Drinkwitz that it was in Boone last season by any means when App State was right there in the group of five mix. And, you know, I think he knew exactly what he was signing up for. This isn't like a, a gotcha situation for him. It, he came in both eyes wide open. And it's going to take a while, but, you know, this is a team that just a few years ago was competing for the SEC East title. I, I think he's a good enough coach that a couple years down the road, they might, you know, it, as he gets things going, they'll have a chance to be better, but it isn't going to be in an all-SEC season by any means. No, and if ever there was going to be a mulligan year, this is the year, so if you're going to... If you're going to bottom out or anything, this is the year, and I don't think you're going to get too much grief. Yeah, no, not at all. This is the perfect year zero for just about any coach, and honestly, for first-year coaches, it might very well be a negative one, especially when you're coming into a situation like, like Drinkwitz is. Well, let's shift gears now, because... Now we're getting into the more talented teams in this division, I think. Right there at sort of the pivot point in the SEC last season was Kentucky. They only finished 3-5 and five in SEC play, but it was impressive as hell that they got to 3-5 and five and to bowl eligibility and ultimately finished with eight wins. This was a team that was starting a wide receiver at quarterback last year in Lynn Bowden. He's not back, obviously, but, you know, I, I think it really comes down to, do we see, you know, Terry Wilson healthy again? Do they actually have a quarterback this year? Um, because if that happens, they bring back an incredible amount on defense, nearly 80% of their productivity from last year. They bring back a fairly well-stocked offense as well. So, you know, if they do have that opportunity, if it's either, you know, Wilson or maybe even Joey Gatewood from Auburn, you have some talent there. And let, let's face it, we talked about what a great job that uh, James Franklin did when he was at Vanderbilt. I think we also need to take our hats off to Mark Stoops there in Lexington because... By no means is that an easy job given the division you're in and the teams you have to play against. So, you know, getting three wins in SEC play doesn't necessarily... Going sub-500 in SEC play doesn't always sound impressive, but given the travails that the Wildcats faced last year, you've really got to hand it to them. Yeah, I mean, we talked about, a lot of people talked about after 2018, Kentucky won 10 games for the first time in forever, how impressive that season was for Stoops. I think last season, 3-5, was much more impressive than that, just because of all the hurdles they had to clear. Like you said, so many injuries at quarterback with Wilson uh, getting hurt, and then Sawyer Smith getting hurt and being or ineffective. Bowden had to step in and be a wildcat quarterback, and was just 
as impressive as any player in college football last season. I, his bowl performance against Virginia Tech in the Felt Bowl was one for the ages. He was just single-handedly refused to lose that game. And, you know, hats off to him. Hats off to Mark Stoops. I think he's proved to be a really, really good coach um, at Kentucky. This is one of the more talented teams he's had in Lexington. Obviously losing Bowden's big. But everywhere else, they look locked and loaded. If they can figure out the quarterback position, whether it's Terry Wilson or maybe Auburn transfer Joey Gatewood takes over, if they can figure that out, they bring back a top 25 defense last season, bring back a lot of talent on that side of the ball. If they can improve offensively, this is a team that probably isn't good enough to really compete with Georgia and Florida for the SEC East, but could be right there under them on that next tier and be ready to play spoiler by pulling an upset over Georgia or Florida or someone like that to potentially swing the race in a different favor. Yeah, I think they have a real chance to bump up to that third position like you were talking and, you know, overtake one of their division rivals in Tennessee who had that third spot last year. The Volunteers came in last year as something of an enigma. We were, you know, they were one of those teams that a lot of people thought could make a leap whether or not going 5-3 and three in conference play and, and winning eight games overall as a leap is, is something that people really have to decide for themselves. But, you know, Tennessee showed sort of fits and starts last year. I wasn't always impressed by what they did, but, you know, when they were on, they, they, they showed that they could be on. And... Whether or not we get more of that this year is really going to be a, the question for them, I think. Because, you know, this was a group that was great in terms of both, you know, when when they actually connected on passes, they were one of the, the teams that carved out more yards than anybody else with each completion. And, the you know, the defense was fairly good against the pass as well. It really comes down to... Can they, you know, can they do better stopping the run? Can they do better running the ball? And I think that's something we really need to keep an eye on with this team this year to see whether or not they can actually get it done. Because in the SEC, I think that's going to be paramount. Yeah, I mean, I think Jeremy Pruitt has things rolling in the right direction in Knoxville. I really do. This is a team that started two and five last year and then won their last six games, um, including the comeback win over Indiana in the Gator Bowl. Um, I, one of the more, you really could see Tennessee turn the corner last year in the Alabama game. You know, they lost 35 to 13. You just look at that on the surface. It doesn't look that, but you know, particularly when Tua Tagovailoa got hurt and knocked out of that game, Tennessee really showed new life and they fought like hell to try to come back in that game. And they were competitive into the fourth quarter of that game. And it just, something just felt like it clicked for the Bulls after that. They rolled off six straight wins. Uh, beat some quality team, beat, you know, a team like Kentucky, blew out a really good UAB team, and then got, like I said, the Indiana win in the bowl game. So a really rough start last year. You know, talking about Pruitt was on the hot seat because they dropped to Georgia State and BYU to open the year before really figuring it out. But he's recruited really well. The talent level has increased in Knoxville. And this looks like a team to me that's got a real shot at being really competitive in the SEC. I think they're probably a year away from being contenders in the SEC East, but I think they're right there with Kentucky on that next level. Defensively, they were a top 25 overall defense last year in the country. And, you know, that's Pruitt's calling card as well. Lots of talent, particularly 
you know, Henry Kyoto O was spectacular for Tennessee as a freshman last year. I'm really excited to watch him as a sophomore. Really, to me, comes down to what they're able to do offensively, particularly at the quarterback position. You know, they've had a lot of issues there. Jarek Garantano's had a lot of potential but hasn't really lived up to it. Brian Maurer and J.T. Shrout both played both made some starts last year for Tennessee. And then there's the hotshot freshman quarterback, Harrison Bailey from Marietta, Georgia, who would have probably been more into the competition had he had we actually had a legitimate spring practice. So I like this Tennessee team a lot, Zach. I think they have a legitimate shot at, uh, at pushing for even maybe the number two spot in the SEC East this year. Possibly. I mean, it, it really comes down to sort of everything falling right for them, but... I think that's going to be the case for just about any team in in this conference this year. Uh, you know, they don't have that hard a road schedule. They obviously have to go on the road to Auburn and to Georgia. But then their other three road games are Arkansas, South Carolina, and Vanderbilt. So I think there are those opportunities to, you know, snag a couple key games on the road that'll set them up better. Because, you know, you turn that around and you look at their home schedule, it's a lot more difficult than that away. They got A&M at home, they have Bama at home, they have Florida at home, and, uh, you know, Kentucky as well. So I think all four of those games are, are very real risks of losing there in Neyland. And if they can flip one or two of them, they can get a lot closer to bowl eligibility, possibly snag up into that second or third spot. Um, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say they can really challenge that top two this year. But let's move on and talk about those top two, because I think that'll really help us sort this out a bit more. Once again, uh, just as they have so many times in the recent past, Florida played the bridesmaid to Georgia's bride. You know, they... Uh, left the world's largest outdoor cocktail party uh, much less satisfied in Gainesville than they were in Athens. Yet at the same time, I mean, what a hell of a job that Dan Mullen has done turning things around in the swamp. They were 6-2 and two last year in conference play. They won 11 games. And, you know, this is a team that brings back a decent amount of talent. They obviously lose LaMichael Pirine, um, so it'll be interesting to see how their running game plays out. Uh, they're going to have to be turning to, to Damian Pierce, uh, Miami recruit Lorenzo Lingard. Um, but, you know, I think what everybody's kind of looking at is whether or not Kyle Trask is able to take another leap in 2020 because that's really I think what it's going to take to finally elevate them past Georgia the defense is going to be damn good as always but can that offense really hit that that next year yeah I mean that's about the only thing left for Florida is to get over that Georgia hump uh under Mullen and then play um play for an SEC championship because they've been right there you know they won the Orange Bowl last year their only losses last year came at LSU and by a touchdown against Georgia. So it's a pretty hard to be too upset at that 11-2 and two when your losses come to the national champs and then Georgia, your rival Georgia, by a touchdown. So, 
You know, that's what's got to happen, though. I mean, I don't think fans are impatient yet, and they shouldn't be. But a couple more losses to Georgia and a couple more second-place finishes will start to see that impatience rise because that's not what, you know, Mullen was brought into Florida to do. Mullen was brought into Florida to get Florida back to the Urban Meyer, the Steve Spurrier-type days where they're winning the SEC and they're competing for national championships year in and year out. So I, I think a big thing for Florida, too, I think Kyle Trask was obviously a revelation last year. I don't think anybody expected him to step in for Felipe Franks when he got injured and be that good. But they've got to run the ball better. They were they only averaged 100, a little under 130 yards per game rushing. They've got to get some improvement on their offensive line, and they've got to open up some holes, especially with P. Ryan gone. They've got to get a guy like Damian Pierce or a Mark Davis going for them. Pierce averaged 5.6 yards per carry last year. So hopefully he can be that guy that fills that void. But like you said, defensively they should be really good. If they can shore up some offensive line issues and get their running game to kind of give them some good offensive balance. But I think Florida has a legit shot at, at Georgia. I would say they're right there with the, with the Bulldogs this year. And it'll be a really fun race and a really fun game when those two meet this year. As it always is. And, you know, it, this could be the year that we see Georgia slip a little bit. They're dealing with a two-quarterback situation, obviously. But, you know, beyond that, it, it, Georgia is such an interesting case. Obviously, you know, SEC East champion last year. Went 7-1 and one in conference play. They, they won 12 games. They went 12-2 and two overall. Um, but this is a team that brings back an incredibly, again, much the same case. We, we can pretty much pencil in an incredible defense for this team, but how are all the new pieces and parts going to fit in for an offense that, you know, especially not getting spring ball and everything else? Because it, who knows even which transfer quarterback they're going to go with this year. Right. Uh, you know, I, I think it's big for them to have a guy like Jamie Newman, who's a veteran. So it won't be as difficult for him to pick up the system. He'll be able to be a plug and play kind of guy. It's a lot more difficult. I think when you have a, uh, someone who hasn't started before, but that's really what's held Georgia back in recent seasons. No offense to Jake Fromm, He's a perfectly capable quarterback. But not having that elite level play at quarterback, I think, has kept them from being, from taking that leap from from really really good team to great team in a national championship. And they've come very close. You know, they were in the overtime uh, against Alabama a few years ago in the national championship game. They were right there. So Georgia's got a ton of talent. If Newman can be that guy, they're really loaded at running back with talented guys. Uh, they lost quite a bit of receipt of their receivers from last year, but George Pickens looks like a guy who's ready to take a pretty significant sophomore leap for them. And then we know Kirby Smart's defense is going to be really, really good and ferocious. A lot of talent back on that defense. Uh, a very stacked two deep on that side of the ball with, because I mean, George has been recruiting just as good, if not better than everybody in the country uh, the last few years. So the only yeah. thing left for Smart to achieve at Georgia is that elusive national championship. Um, and, and we'll see if this is the year or not. I really do like this Georgia team, though. Um, they're the favorites in the SEC East for a reason, Zach. Yeah, definitely. And we know that Smart, as we talked about in the last segment, if he does clear that hurdle and wins the college football playoff championship this year, 
he's going to be putting an asterisk by that team's name as the best national champion ever because they had to win 11 SEC games to get there. So, you know, a little bit of hyperbole for him perhaps, but at, at this point, you know, I think they've definitely earned that right to, to have that chance. On that note, John, let's break down our order of how we think things are going to shake out. All right. The East, how, how do you think they go from bottom to top? Yeah, so I've got I've got Vanderbilt at the very bottom. I think it'll be challenging for the Commodores to climb out of the cellar. I've got Missouri sixth and then South Carolina fifth. I kind of think tier level-wise, you probably got Vandy at the bottom and South Carolina and Missouri kind of jockeying for position at number five and six. And I think you're talking about a tier level again, three and four with Tennessee and Kentucky. I've got Tennessee third, Kentucky fourth, but I think both of those teams are, are really good this year. And again, you break off the tiers at the top of Georgia and Florida. I've got Georgia winning the East again, Florida coming up just short. But, you know, honestly, that race feels like a coin flip between those two teams this year. Yeah, again, I think it comes down to their game against one another. Right there with you, I think Vanderbilt finishes winless this year. They're going to be the 0-10 team of the SEC East. We're honestly thinking on on the similar wavelength, John. I've got South Carolina and Missouri both finishing 2-8. and eight. I think, uh, you know, it really comes down to that game against one another, and I think South Carolina wins it, so they kind of get the tiebreaker for 5th. Um, same thing with Kentucky and Tennessee. I think they both finished five and five this year. Um, just some tough games on each of their schedule. I, I think Tennessee probably wins the head to head at home. So they get that tiebreaker in, in, into third. And then I'm with you at the top. I, I think until proven otherwise, this is Georgia's division to lose. And Maybe this is the year that Florida flips that switch in Jacksonville and is able to make it it play out for them. But it all comes down to that game. So whoever wins that game is undoubtedly going to be the SEC East champ this year. Yeah, I agree completely. It'll definitely come down to that game. and be really It's a really fun divisional race. I think Tennessee and Kentucky both have a, a, a real shot at... Um, playing spoiler in that race too so that'll be a lot of fun and how fun is it that we're going to get the last week of the season florida and tennessee like that's so much fun in terms of our rivalry standpoint getting that on december 5th that'll be a hell of a birthday present for me that's for sure yeah with potentially huge implications on the sec east race there too it really could i i think it's a great way to end the season we talked about the fact that they don't have the season very front-loaded but if we indeed get to December still playing football, there, it, it's a great look. It's it, it's a great look indeed. Well, on that note, we're going to take our last break, everybody. We're going to refuel, and we'll be right back in a minute to discuss the SEC West race.
Welcome back to the final segment of this week's Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We're talking SEC football in the last of our 2020 college football preview series. We just finished talking about the SEC East in the order of finish that John and I are both projecting, so it is time to switch over to the SEC West. And since we're going in reverse order, that means we're starting off with the Arkansas Razorbacks that finished perfectly winless in SEC play last year, went 2-10 and ten overall. Do you think Arkansas has any chance at all this season at even getting an SEC win, John? Ah, oh, man. Things have been really, really rough for the Razorbacks. Now they're on to a, a new coach, one of the more surprising hires of the offseason with Georgia offensive line coach Sam Pittman coming over to take over Arkansas after they fired Chad Morris. But, man, I don't know. I think it's going to be a, another really rough season for the Razorbacks. It's tough looking at their schedule to really see a game that stands out as one they're going to win. You know, they don't have Vanderbilt on the schedule to potentially get that win. So, I mean, just looking at things uh, based on the talent level of all the teams, I – I think it's tough to see an SEC win on the schedule for the Razorbacks this year. All their, you know, really tough games all across the board for Arkansas. So, no, I, I'm, I'm projecting Arkansas to go 0-10. Uh, and I, I hate to do that to the Razorback faithful. I know they've been through a lot in recent years. They should at least have some improved quarterback play this year with Felipe Franks transferring over. Uh, but I think he's going to find that the offensive line in Arkansas probably doesn't quite measure up to what he had gotten used to at Florida based on how much they've struggled in recent seasons. They do have talent, though. I mean, Rakeem Boyd's one of the top running backs in the conference. He's a guy who ran for 1,100 yards last year on six yards of carry, despite getting no help from anybody else on the offense. So maybe Arkansas, I'll be rooting for Arkansas to pull an upset at some point so they don't go over, but I think it's going to be difficult for them to carve out even a single win with what they face on this schedule. Yeah, I mean, this is a team that they have all the right pieces in place. I think Pittman did a great job in his coordinator hires, bringing in Kendall Bryles, bringing in Barry Odom on the defensive side of the ball. But it's going to take them a while to get things rolling. You know, especially as we talked about in the previous segment, for a first-year head coach, it's going to be really tough not having had your full slate of practices in the spring, you know, with all the uncertainty that's gone on this summer and into the the early preseason camps. I'm with you. I think it's really tough to see them getting even a single win. And... Uh, you know, we, we talk about these first-year head coaches. We have a, a lot of them in the SEC West this year. Ole Miss is another one of those teams that, you know, I look at. And, you know, last year they finished 2-6 and six overall, or in SEC play. They finished 4-8 and eight overall. And enter Lane Kiffin. He, you know, he has plenty of offensive talent there to work with in his first season. But that it, it's a hell of a challenge to step up from Florida Atlantic to the SEC, and to get, you know he's obviously been there before in his one ill-fated season in Knoxville. But I think it's an even tougher position to jump into 
with what he's deal going to be dealing with in Oxford. Yeah, I mean, the problem in, in Oxford last year certainly wasn't the offense. This is a, a team that was 26th in the nation in yards per game last year. They had a dynamite rushing offense, particularly when they figured out how dynamic John Rice Plumley was at quarterback being a dual threat. It'll be interesting in what direction they go at quarterback this year if they stick with a, a guy like Plumley, who's a much more refined runner than he is a passer, or if Matt Corral gets another shot at playing quarterback for Tiffin as well. So this team, I think is going to show some improvement this year because I think Kiffin is a really good coach. I, I think he, um, you know, kind of got a raw deal, in my opinion, at USC. I think he had things on the right track at Tennessee before he, he left. He probably should have stayed at Tennessee instead of going. You can't really blame the guy for going out to, to his, what was his dream school. But he really, you know, rehabilitated his image as Alabama's offensive coordinator. He did a tremendous job at Florida Atlantic in three seasons there. I think Ole Miss fans should be really excited about him. Again, though, one of the problems is you don't have, with the new coaches, you didn't have a full offseason to kind of get things going. I think Kiffin's a good game planner, though. I think he'll have stuff going for that offense. It really depends on if DJ Durkin and Chris Partridge can really get this defense where it needs to be because they were really bad on that side of the ball. I don't see a massive leap forward for Ole Miss, but I think better days are definitely coming for this program under Kiffin's guidance. Yeah, this is a team I could see with a similar winning percentage as they had last year. But, you know, at the same time showing improvement on both sides of the ball. So, it, it, a lot, so much of this comes down to, A, are, you know, how much experience does the team have with the coaching staff they're working with? And B, the fact that you're playing an all-SEC schedule. It's... It, it's damn near unfair to a first-year head coach in any one of these situations. So, you know, I, I feel for guys like Pittman, like Lane Kiffin, and as much as I hate to, you know, I love to say it, I hate to say it, I, you know, feel that for Mike Leach as well as he steps in at Mississippi State, uh, which indeed is the next team on our list. The... The Bulldogs finished three and five in SEC play last year. Went six and seven overall. Couldn't you know pull it off in the bowl game. But other than LSU, no other team returns less talent this year than Mississippi State, which makes things awfully tough for Leach and his new staff as they head into that opening year. I'm going to be honest, I think this is one of those years where Mississippi State probably loses around the same number of games as they lost last year, but they don't have nearly as many games on the schedule to, to make it up. And perhaps the most interesting hire in college football this offseason was Mike Leach going, coming into SEC country at Mississippi State. A very curious fit, a very pretty big change in philosophy from what we've seen from the Bulldogs in recent years going from being a team who was, you know, a dominant running team. Last year, they averaged 220 yards a game rushing, only 179 yards a game passing. That's going to flip pretty significantly under Leach, and he doesn't care that they haven't had a lot of time to practice together. They're going to throw the ball, and they're going to throw it a lot. And um, it'll be interesting to see, with K.J. Costello coming over as a transfer from Stanford, what he's able to do. This was a guy who coming into last year was projected to be a first-round draft pick. Things didn't go the way he had hoped in Palo Alto. 
maybe Leach is a Leach is a guy we've seen as a quarterback whisperer too, being able to turn some walk-on quarterbacks into legitimate starters and NFL prospects even. So I think Leach is going to be able to get a good bit out of Costello. I just don't know if there's a lot of talent elsewhere on this roster this year. They've got, you know, they've got some talented players, but I don't know that they have enough to really do enough in the SEC this year. Like you said, they don't, only LSU returns less talent. We know how pillaged that roster has been because of early entrance and then people opting out of the season. So Mississippi State, I think, eventually will get there. But this is a really big philosophical change that's going to take time to implement, I think. And with an abbreviated offseason, abbreviated spring practices, I just don't see uh, Leach being able to lift Mississippi State to bowl eligibility. I think you're probably right in terms of them losing seven games last year, that probably being a likelihood for this year as well. Yeah, and I mean, this is a team where you look at the switch in coaching staffs, the switch in philosophy. Probably the most talented player they have on their roster is running back Kylan Hill, who, remember earlier this summer, threatened not to play for the Bulldogs ever again unless the, the Mississippi State flag lost the Confederate Stars and Bars. Indeed, he had enough power to make that happen, Yep, but it'll be interesting to see whether or not Leach even gives him enough carries to to wreak the kind of havoc that he did as a first-team All-SEC performer last year. I think that's one thing that, that might be really interesting to keep our eyes on, because honestly, success or failure in Starkville probably depends on having the season or, or having that offense remain as close to the talent that they have at the moment as possible. But I don't know if the Mad Pirate's going to feel comfortable doing that. And I, I certainly don't think he's going to feel comfortable running the ball as much as they probably should to set themselves up for the best success possible. Yeah, I think Leach is a smart enough coach to figure out that Kylan Hill's his biggest weapon, even if they're not running the ball. They're going to get the ball in his hands, screen passes, or little swing passes out of the backfield. Uh, and this could be good for Kylan Hill as well, as, as, well as, as his NFL prospects in terms of getting more of an opportunity to be a receiver out of the backfield. So he'll get his touches. I think Leach will utilize him uh, as much as he possibly can. We saw Max Borgie last season for Washington State catch a lot of passes out of the backfield. So it'll be a, a definitely a new role for Kylan Hill this year. But uh, if Leach doesn't get him the ball... 20 to 25 times a game, then he is doing something really wrong. Oh, indeed. And, and I think you're right. He'll probably see more of those those backfield passes. But, you know, this is a guy who, over the past two years, you know, he's averaged 20 catches a season. He averages about 178 yards catching the ball out of the backfield in, in the past two years. And... You know, he has five touchdowns receiving, so it's not like Hill can't, you know, be a decent weapon for the passing game uh, as a running back. But it's going to be, I, I think that's one of the more interesting stories to keep our eye on as the season goes on, is, is how does Leach reconcile his proclivities as a coach with the talent he has around him and and using his best weapons as best as they can. Moving on, let, let's move on because we've got that 
that team that sits right there in the middle of the SEC West, Texas A&M has been one of those teams where we've projected greatness for them, but they've also had to deal with a, a hellish schedule in recent seasons. It seems like each of the past two or three years, this team has had one of the like ten toughest schedules in the entire country to play. And, you know, that last year they were able to go a perfectly mediocre 4-4 four and four in SEC play. They won eight games. It's not like this is a bad team by any means. But I think the time is now in College Station. No team returns more talent in the entire SEC than Texas A&M. You know, they're 16th in the country, according to Bill Connolly, before, obviously, the pandemic hit and both the Big Ten and the Pac-12, along with the MAC and Mountain West, decided to call things off for the fall. But this is a team that returns 80% of its offensive productivity from last year, about three-quarters of their defensive productivity, I think, if anything, the time is now for Jimbo Fisher and crew. Yeah, you described it perfectly mediocre, 4-4, four and four, and that's a great way to describe that. They didn't pay Jimbo Fisher $75 million guaranteed to be mediocre. He was given that money to come to College Station and elevate the Aggies into one of the premier programs in the country, right? A team that was going to win the SEC and compete for college football playoff positioning. And they haven't done that yet. This feels like the year for them to take that next step. And if they don't do it this year, Zach, then when are they going to do it? Because like you said, they return as much or more talent than anyone in the conference. They've got a senior quarterback in Kellen Mond. He's got plenty of talent around them, a really good running back in Isaiah Spiller, some talented receivers, a defense that returns quite a bit of talent, really stocked too deep from really good recruiting classes that Jimbo's brought in. And, you know, with LSU losing all they've lost, this kind of feels like the Aggies' year to jump up the standings and really compete, you know, with the Alabamas of the world for a potential SEC West title. Um, you know, get drawing Alabama on the road in what's the, effectively the second week of the season is a pretty tough draw. That will be a pretty big ask for the Aggies to come out um, on top in that one. But if they could navigate through those first three games where they've got Alabama and Florida within the first three if they could somehow win one of those, along with obviously beating Vanderbilt to open the season, they've got a shot to be in really good shape heading into the final stretch of the year with LSU and Auburn looming at the end. So I do like this Texas A&M team. I think they're probably the team that's benefited the most from the roster attrition that LSU's had. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think that's a great point to make because, it, you know, in college football, it usually isn't just a zero-sum game. But when you're playing a conference-only schedule, it really is in a lot of ways. And LSU's loss in a lot of ways could be Texas A&M's gain. I, I, I like the way the Aggies set up this year. I think especially what they have at home instead of, you know, especially getting to play both Florida and LSU at home helps in a lot of ways. And then, you know, you look at that away schedule as well. And Texas A&M is in that position where they have to play both Alabama and Auburn on the road. Those are probably... Yeah, those are probably the two toughest games on the schedule. But then 
drawing Mississippi State, South Carolina, and Tennessee, you know, the fact that they don't have a Georgia on the schedule in the regular season probably helps them a lot. And uh, so I really like the way this team comes into this season. I think for Jimbo Fisher, this is kind of a... I hate to say it in the midst of a pandemic, but this very well might be a make-or-break year for him. Um, because you're right, you know. I, I think we talked about it in, in similar fashion in the last segment with Florida and Dan Mullen. You know, Mullen has obviously had better success in his first couple of years in Gainesville, but in Gainesville they don't pay a coach, you know, 11 wins don't mean jack squat if you're not winning it, playing for the SEC title in that regard. And for Texas A&M, they came to the SEC with pretensions of elevating themselves beyond their traditional rival Texas. And you know, they haven't quite done that economically yet. I, I think on some levels, in terms of prestige, playing in the SEC obviously does do that for them. But you have to execute. You know, you can't just be playing those games and think that it's all going to work out in your favor. At some point, you have to start winning those games. And we haven't seen that to any sort of extent we haven't seen a fever pitch build up in college station since Johnny Manziel left you know they they had the Kevin Sumlin years that looked initially like they were doing exactly what they wanted and they turned to Jimbo Fisher largely because of the fact that he has that pedigree as a national championship coach but doing it in Tallahassee and in the ACC is very different than doing it in a place like College Station and in a conference like the SEC. So, you know, I, I think I, I think highly of, of this A&M team this year, but I don't know if they're a championship team even this year. And I think that says as much about the rest of the conference around them as it does about that team itself. But if they're going to get to that point, obviously they have to beat some of these teams. And one of those teams that sits right there on their schedule that they need to be able to pick off is a team like Auburn. You know, this, the, this Auburn team went 5-3 and three last year, won nine games. And, you know, they had their fair share of surprises. I'll admit, I'm right there with you, John, and not liking Auburn because I'm still stinging from last Labor Day weekend when Auburn ended up coming back against Oregon. Don't have to worry about that this year, thanks to the Pac-12's decision, uh, you know, happening in any guise. But, you know, Auburn is still playing. And I look at this team, and for all that they do have coming back in guys like Bo Nix, they're another one of those teams that loses a fair amount, and it's really curious as to whether or not they can maintain that sort of level that people expect on the Plains. Yeah, I, line play is what really jumps out when you look at Auburn for this year, because that's something that was such a strength the last two seasons on both sides of the ball. Auburn's had really strong offensive lines, and they've had really, really talented defensive lines. 
And maybe there'll be some guys who step up on the defensive line to be able to replace a guy like Derek Brown or Marlon Davidson. Uh, but, you know, those are unproven commodities trying to replace really talented players like those guys. Um, and then offensive line, why they returned zero starters from last season. So they replaced their entire offensive line. I think Bo Nix will find it much more difficult to play behind a brand new offensive line than he did behind what Auburn had last season. Uh, obviously, the sophomore quarterback showed a lot of potential last year, uh, but he was really hot and cold, right? Like, if he was good, he was really good, and he had moments, like, you know, not to rip open an old wound, but like that final drive against Oregon last year was impressive. And then, you know, his play to, to rip open another old wound, his play at the Iron Bowl in some flat situation was impressive as well. So, But he also had plenty of weeks where he was a total dud, and they couldn't rely on him to do much of anything. So it'll be interesting to see the progress he makes. Chad Morris is in town now after getting let go by Arkansas. Obviously, it didn't work out for him to head coach in the SEC, but this is a guy who really had a really great run at Clemson as the offensive coordinator before moving on to SMU. So, you know, like you said, there's some talent on this Auburn team. I like what they have at receiver in particular with Seth Williams and Anthony Schwartz on the outside. I think that's going to cause a lot of problems for SEC defensive backs. But I worry about their line play on both sides. I worry about what they have coming back in their secondary as well. So I don't know. I, I don't think Auburn's good enough this year to really compete for an SEC championship. But you never know when it comes to Auburn because the years I've always felt like I've said that, they come out of nowhere and surprise everybody. So I think this is a good team, but several steps away from being a great team. I think that's a fair assessment, even coming from a Tide supporter, John. And on that note, we're, we're at at that point of this segment where we need to talk about the Crimson Tide. And let's face it, last season, in terms of the standards that have been set in the Nick Saban era, was a disappointment for all you Tide fans out there. This was the first time since 2010 that the Tide lost two or more games in conference play. Uh, Alabama went 11-2 and overall, 6-2 and in the conference. And, you know, that was a big reason why they were sitting on the sidelines, uh, not only in the SEC championship game, but also in the college football playoff picture for the first time since it came online in 2014. And, you know, looking at this season, they... They come into the year with a, a, a diminished level of experience, but this is Alabama. You know, they retool. They don't need to rebuild. And on that note, I think, you know, expectations are huge. We took, you know, we went by the order of finish, but if you look at the media poll that came out at the end of July, everybody thinks that Alabama is the top of this division and how do you feel coming into the year John given that this is your team confident in one word to be honest like I, I you're totally right about the expectations for this team and not meeting it last year but I love just if I could go back and tell nine-year-old me how life was going to turn out as an Alabama fan he would just be so happy because it was so tough back then that to think that an 11-win season would be disappointing, where your two losses came in a fluke Iron Bowl loss. And I don't mean that as sour grapes. Go back and look at Bill Connolly's post-game win expectancy and how they 
and was at like 95% the Iron Bowl last season. Um, and then, you know, a 5.1 possession loss to the national champions. So, you know, definitely disappointing because of the expectations that are always on this team. But I always smile when I think of young me being so sad at losing six straight Iron Bowls, getting the chance to watch this team now. So, I, you know, Zach, there's obviously some um, t- some talented players that have to be replaced, notably, you know, Jerry Judy, Henry Ruggs at wide receiver, notably Tua Tungabailoa at quarterback. But we saw Matt Jones step up at quarterback last season and perform really well. Um, he was really impressive, I thought, in the bowl game against Michigan. I thought he, you know, acquitted himself really well. He played good. He played fairly well in the Iron Bowl as well, save for two big mistakes, the two pick sixes that swung that game, um, one of which was kind of a, a 50-50 play that just kind of went against him. But I think they, him coming back this year, he's got a lot of talent. There's also the five-star freshman Bryce Young, who's got a lot of talent sitting behind him. And then despite losing two first-round pick receivers, you still got Devontae Smith and Jalen Waddle, who is still as good of a one-two as anybody can boast in the country. But I think the big thing, along with a really talented offensive line, by the way, one of the better ones in the country, I believe, I think the big thing that's causing a lot of Alabama fans to be excited about the year, this year is the return of Dylan Moses, at inside linebacker. That was a real position of um, a, a real a position that struggled last year with starting two true freshmen at both middle linebacker spots and Nick Saban's defense. That's a tough task for anybody to really go with, losing Moses last year to a torn ACL and fall camp. Having him back, though, along with those two freshmen who are now sophomores to provide depth in the middle, I think is huge because those guys got a baptism by fire. But Dylan Moses and Christian Harris at inside linebacker, probably as athletic of a pair of inside linebackers that Saban's ever had at the same time. So, I think the secondary is a bit of a question mark. Patrick Sertan's back. He's going to obviously lock down one side. Uh, I think Josh Job's got a lot of talent, too, to go on the other side. Losing Xavier McKinney at safety is going to be a challenging replace, though. Jordan Battle showed some talent last year as well, but can Daniel Wright finally take that next step, the junior safety who's you know super talented as well? So I think this team's really good. I think they should be considered the heavy favorites in the SEC West. And, you know... Them and Georgia are kind of probably neck and neck in that regard uh, in terms of SEC favorite. But I think with all LSU has to replace and some of the question marks elsewhere, I think this is definitely the team to be in the SEC. Yeah, I think it really helps that Alabama is the only one of the top four teams in the SEC West from last year that doesn't have players opting out yet as well. The fact is, as much as they have lost and as much as they do have to replace they don't also have to worry about sudden departures as well from the program, at least not yet. And we've talked about the fact that we could still see players opting out down the road. But right. a- as of right now, where they sit, they're in better position than anybody else in the SEC West in that regard. And that could go a long way toward determining how that conference finish or how that division finishes. Before we move forward, Zach, I got to say, I got to point out. And I hope you saw the video earlier on, on Monday of Nick Saban leading the his players on the Black Lives Matter march. I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, uh, That's something that really meant a lot to me personally to see that. I, that's one of the things that we talked about this offseason, about the moral obligation of coaches speaking out and stepping up during these trying times. And I love to see that as a fan of the university, as a guy who attended the university, being able to see 
my head coach essentially go out and lead a march like that was really important, I think, for me, and important in a state that is has not been as tolerant of issues as it needs to be to see the most, um, you know, visible face of the state leading a march for Black Lives Matter. So I just wanted to throw that out before we moved on as well. I'm glad you did. That's a great thing to bring up because uh, entirely laudable, and you're absolutely right. We've talked about this before saying that these public phases of entire states need to put up or shut up, and Nick Saban's put up. And, you know, he's in a position where we could very well see him having another magical season there in Tuscaloosa. Because, ultimately, it comes down to whether or not they can take down the defending champs in the division. And LSU is reeling right now. Is a team that went fifteen and zero last year, but this ain't the same team that went fifteen and zero last year by any means. They already lost Heisman winner Joe Burrow. They lost Justin Jefferson. Now they don't have Jamar Chase on on offense. They they're shedding their defensive talent uh, left and right. This was a team that before we even got into the pandemic and all of these opt-outs was 127th out of 130 FBS teams in returning talent. Do you think there's any way that LSU can maintain their perch at the top of the SEC West? And if not, how far do you think this LSU team falls down those rankings? Yeah, I, I don't think they're going to be able to maintain that perch just because I I think it's unrealistic to think that we're coming off one of the LSU's coming off one of the best seasons in college football history. Like they were dominant last year, great team all around. They were going to have a drop off anyway because of what they lost. They already had to replace Joe Burrow, like you said, and he was you know the Heisman Trophy winner, much deserved. Had sixty touchdown passes last year. They're pretty high on Miles Brennan's potential. Miles Brennan's not going to have a season like Burrow had last year. It's just not going to happen. You're not going to find lightning in a bottle twice in a row like that. But now losing some of the guys they've lost to, to opt-outs. I mean, just replacing Justin Jefferson and Jamar Chase is 3,300 yards and 38 touchdowns to replace. That's a lot of production to try to replace that receiver, even with a guy like Terrence Marshall, who's as of now still going to play a guy like Eric Gilbert, uh, a top tight end prospect coming in should help. But I think one of the bigger losses on their offense, too, was Clyde edwards Elair, a guy who had 1,400 yards rushing and over 500 yards receiving last year, or 450 yards receiving last year. He was just such a multi-purpose weapon for that offense last year. Losing him is a really big blow for this team. And then, you know, they got a ton to replace defensively. They lost a couple of really key uh, defensive linemen. That's going to make this a challenging year. For LSU, both lines are going to have a lot to replace. So I think LSU slips decently down the standings this year. They're not in any danger of, of not being a bowl team or anything, but I don't think they have a real shot at competing for another SEC West title. Well, I think that brings us to the point where we actually have to tip our hand, John, and say where we think everybody's going to shake out here. So now's your chance to say where LSU lands in that pecking order. Let's start from bottom to top. How do you see this division shaking out? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's any shock to anybody that we've, I've got Arkansas sitting in seventh place. I think the Razorbacks are going to remain in the cellar. 
I think the Mississippi schools come next. I've got Mississippi State sixth, Ole Miss fifth. That'll undoubtedly come down to the Egg Bowl, and God only knows what's going to happen in the Egg Bowl, just like every year. But I'm really excited to see that Lane Kiffin versus Mike Leach rivalry in the Egg Bowl. Very strange times indeed. I've got LSU falling down to fourth. That's where I've got the Tigers slotting in. I had them higher uh, until the loss of Jamar Chase and, and Tyler Shelvin, the defensive line guys they've lost this year as well. So I've got them slipping to fourth. I've got Auburn coming in third, Texas A&M second, and I've got Alabama winning the West. We're really close on this, John. We're really close. Because I have Arkansas, as you mentioned earlier this segment, being the 0-10 team in the West. Just like we're looking at Vanderbilt that same way in the East. I'm with you that I think Mississippi State goes sixth. I think they got three and seven is probably right where they finish. I think Ole Miss is right around four and six. I think they win the Egg Bowl to finish just ahead. Uh, You know, I think you're right about Auburn and LSU. I have them flipped only because I think LSU wins against Auburn at home. Or, uh, no, they're playing on the road. And then I'm with you on Auburn and LSU. I I think that's sort of the next tier. I have them flipped. I think LSU finishes ahead of Auburn by virtue of their win at Jordan-Hare. But I think these are both 7-3 and teams. You know, obviously comfortably bowl eligible, but I think they do slip up a bit. I like Texas A&M just like you do. I think they're an 8-win team, and... I, I have Alabama going undefeated. I have them being the only team that finishes undefeated in SEC play. Uh, just because of the fact that, you know, as we mentioned earlier, we haven't seen as much attrition in terms of opting out around COVID-19 as we have at other schools in the SEC. Perhaps that changes, but even if it does, I... You know, Alabama recruits at such a ridiculous level, and every one of those players buys into the process in a way that I I certainly don't think think we see two SEC losses again like we did last year. I think that was a huge anomaly for this team. Well, roll tide, Zach. Roll tide, John. (laughs) Which brings us to the SEC championship game. It sounds like we both have Alabama playing Georgia. Who do you think comes out on top? Yeah, it'll be interesting when we get an SEC championship game with Alabama and Georgia because it'd be an, a regular season rematch. We both got Alabama winning in the regular season in that game with it being at Bryant Denny. I think Alabama would take it again in the in Atlanta. It would be obviously a tougher game uh, in a neutral site, I suppose, depending on how that goes for the SEC championship game this year. Who knows? But, yeah, I, I, I took Alabama to top Georgia – Uh, and what should be two really good games between the two this year. And then one last question I have to ask you, John, because I think it's something that plenty of us are thinking about right now. Does the SEC get two teams in the college football playoff? (sighs) You know, I haven't given that a ton of thought, to be honest, Zach. I would say that there's probably a good chance of that happening with there only being three Power Five conferences. But it'll be interesting, particularly if... Alabama beats Georgia twice, for instance, and say Alabama's sitting there at 11-0, Georgia's the second-best SEC team. Do you really give Georgia a third crack at the Crimson Tide in the college football playoff at that point? I think that's kind of a a slippery slope, because then if you have 
then you're really talking about an illegitimate national champion if Georgia beats Alabama and wins a national championship despite going one and two against the Crimson Tide in the regular season. So I think what could be possible is I think it could open the door for, you know, a Texas A&M or an Auburn or somebody like that if they could just lose to Alabama in the regular season to jump up. But in a normal year, you would think that the SEC would have a really good shot. But I think with Alabama and Georgia playing each other already in the regular season, that's going to make it pretty difficult. Now, that could change if Florida overtakes Georgia. Then the Gators would probably have a, a better argument. I think that's fair. You know, personally, the group of five guy in me would love to see a team like UCF or Cincinnati step into that spot as a four seed. Uh but, you know, I, I'm inclined to think that the way the selection committee works in the college football playoff, they're probably going to privilege one of those, you know, SEC West runners-up or an SEC East runner-up even in that situation. We'll see what happens, but, you know, in a, in a season that's undoubtedly going to be weird as hell, I that would probably be the most normal decision that the college football playoff committee could possibly make is throwing two SEC teams in there. Any last words you want to talk about the SEC before we're done for this week, John? No, I, I you know, I'm excited to, to hopefully get to watch some SEC and other college football this year. But like you mentioned in the beginning, it'll probably be in the back of my mind all season long that maybe we shouldn't be doing this, but I can't lie and say that I won't watch because I certainly will. You know, I, I think it's one of those things that all of us that are dealing with the conflicts of fanaticism and realism are, are just going to have to navigate, and that's life. You know, you guys will probably have to hear plenty more takes where I'm talking about being uneasy, but that doesn't mean we're not going to be here talking with you every week because that's who we are and that's what we do. So thank you for tuning in, everybody, to our 2020 preview series. Lord knows it was protracted enough for everybody, given that we took that nice little three-week break talking about some crazy news that was going on in the interim. But we've made it to that finish line, and now all that we have left is to get down to playing the games. So, on that note, I hope all of you stay safe out there. Uh, recognize that while we have football back, beginning with that FCS kickoff that we saw last Saturday, we also are still not on the other side of this pandemic. So make sure that you're still doing the smart things wearing your masks, distancing, staying out of the public eye as much as possible. Um, if you're a college student, please take online classes as much as you can this year. Uh, because as somebody that's having to teach in person, I want to be on a campus as little as possible. So hang in there. We're all hanging in there. And, you know, we'll be back again next Wednesday to talk more college football because that's what we're here for. Thanks for tuning in.